0: Show them. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast inspiring conversations, discussing books so that you have to read them. Today, we're very honored to welcome Daniel menega to the persistence of vision podcast to discuss the Silmarillion and i'm very honored also to say that our super intern union brooks will be filling in for lance fever myers what have you to say for yourself union brooks
1: hello excited to talk about some talking today
0: Yeah, he's excited to talk about some Tolkien. But are you, Daniel Menega? Are you excited to talk about?
2: Super excited! I can't meet. I can't wait to talk about Tolkien. Talk to Union. Talk to LB. Dork out on elves, orcs, everything before that. The Nascall, the beginning of the Nascall. You name it, LB. I'm onto it.
0: Dork out. <laughs> How can you call this dorky? This is a book about elves and dwarves. I
2: mean, this is the foundational textbook of dork, isn't it? Dork orc. Dork orc. I mean, come on.
0: <laughs> oh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't been to our website, pod publishing.com, then you are a goddamn fool. Because that is the place to go and read The Goddamn Fool, or at least order it, to, to order Why So Much, to uh, order Lance's new book, The Zombie Book. About this holidays, which is so wonderful and everyone loves. And uh, what else can I say? Go to the pov-publishing.com website. So, Daniel, sorry to interrupt you about station long. identification. Nope, nope. Why don't you tell us what in the world is the
2: Silmarillion? Well, the Silmarillion, I think, it better be defined by the Silmarillion the rings, or actually these little stones, they're precious jewels that were made in in a long, long time ago, LB, Long, long before our great-grandfather or anything like that. But Mm. essentially, these, these precious stones were so powerful that they not only moved people to do great acts, they moved one elf to make a great oath a long, long time ago. An oath. An oath, a great oath, where he made a claim that he would never arrest nor would his sons live until he had avenged a certain event. I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was the theft of these jewels I mentioned. Mm, A crime. A crime of some sort, almost like a a Hearst type of bank robbery, if you will. Yikes. Long, long time ago, uh, a bad, bad man named Melkor ran away with the Silmaril and created an epic called the Silmarillion.
0: Now, I saw the Avengers movies. It sounds like that has pretty much the same plot, right? The, the jewels have to go into the glove.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that people know that's almost 101 as far as I'm not going to, I don't really, haven't read any scholarship, LB, but 10 to 1, 98% of the scholarship out there on Lord of the Rings is comparative literature.
0: Comparative literature.
2: I would guess I would maybe 80%, let's be fair.
0: Mm-hmm. What is comparative literature?
2: Well, it would probably just be, um, in my definition for this purpose, just exploring how every single thing that's written relates to everything else that's been written.
1: I I thought that was probably one of the more interesting themes of this book, is that how mythology uh, plays a huge part in the shaping of languages. And I actually had a realization reading it last night that this is actually a, a mythos explaining how the elvish or the elvish language came to be the made up language by Absol- J R Tolkien.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's my understanding of it too. And you summarized the the gist of the separation between the elves and men is the language. In fact, near the end of the Silmarillion, when things are getting really really bad, especially for the for men who have turned away from the good so to speak mm-hmm. the way that the way that we distinguish those men are that they don't have anything to do with elvish tongue they totally reject it they are not allowed to speak it if they do they get sacrificed
0: all right let's take a quick step back though here what is the relationship we know the author of this book is j.r.r tolkien what is and he's more famous for the hobbit and for the lord of the rings unless i'm terribly mistaken what is the what is the relationship between those books those novels and the silmarillion
2: i mean the way i see it's it's kind of like you're reading the silmarillion and it's a big old book and you've used it as a doorstop for many years you finally dug into it and about halfway through there's a little paragraph that says and Bilbo begat Frodo, and Frodo from the Shire went down and destroyed the Ring of Power in, the mount, in mount Doom. It's, it's like a, almost, it's, the, the Silmarillion is an umbrella um, story. It's a much big, it's a much bigger story. It's an, a bigger story. It's, you know, you can think about, even the Lord of the Rings, you could think about as a tale within, not just a novel, but yeah, A saga.
0: A saga. So and 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 it seems to me that Tolkien was very interested in the uh, speaking of sagas of the with the the Norse myths. Is that is that accurate?
2: I I bet he would be. You yeah. know, just given the uh, given the the nature of the shipbuilding and the seafaring and all the things. And I was reading something the other day in in one of the sections about the elves. They cruised across the ocean without wind. Or without sails or oars, hmm. that kind of thing. So it sort of evokes a, a mythic Nordic seafaring ability. But I don't know much more about the scholarship. Do you?
1: Uh, I mean, from what I was gathering from Wikipedia, it, it, Tolkien seemed like he was a master of like several languages, multilingualistic. Studied Old English, um, spoke Finnish, Spanish, um, and like four other languages. It's amazing and i from what i heard a lot of his whole thought for these books or what was the uh, saga of the, uh, the lord of the rings was just a linguistic development for his language and he even has said the languages came first and the stories really okay. described the languages for why they existed
2: so he would come up with linguistic concepts and, and back characters and stories, and, and out of those, that linguistic passion. Right, that, right. That's right. sort of an amazing way to create.
1: But. Yeah. I, I, to me, this, this part actually changed my concept of my whole opinion on all mythologies, which is I never gave much mythologies any credit for what they're worth, but they have. But seeing how something like this has such profound influence over the history of the people, their language, their culture. It, it just highlights overall how all mythology has a huge significance to
2: people. Completely, and, and you probably find the same thing, both of you, is that the stories are always the same. And, and like you mentioned with the Avengers, um, and, and this idea of of vengeance, all the big themes Tolkien doesn't stray, doesn't really, doesn't um, step around romance. You know, it's full of it, Luthien and and Baron and all the love stories that are intrinsic to that. So all the big themes are there, and I think what you're saying is like the language is what ties it together. Um, uh, You know, near the end, especially with the Kings of Numenor that rebel, and I don't want to get too into the weeds. I think I'd like people to try to read this or just to finish it. You know, but these, these, um, you know, these. These kings at the very end, I think, are most interesting to me. And I mentioned to you, LB, that that last section I can't ever pronounce. It's called the Akalabeth, mm-hmm. Is after a lot of the Elven myths, but it's near the end, it, it, where um, all the men and women, I assume, are just are, are at their apex of power. Mm-hmm. And the, the Numenoreans, they've got the most influence of Manwa the the gods and different elves have had great influence on them. They're at their peak of their power and they decide to seek the gift that they see elves having, which is life everlasting. And they see death as something that they fear and they more and more become afraid of death. Yes. And so it's kind of a human story.
0: Yes. And the elves, uh, are, have the opposite perspective where they see their immortality is a bit of a burden. Isn't that right?
2: Yeah, that's a, Yeah, actually that's, that's, um,
0: but the book itself is it 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 seems to at least begin as a kind of creation myth for the entire world that that Tolkien envisions.
2: Right. It starts out as the entire world the first five or six pages maybe more than that seem like genesis and but then he zeroes in on Ea, EA which you can probably guess what that is a stand in for Arda which is another I guess Germanic rendition he gives and names this world. Um, and then he zeroes in on on his firstborn. He calls the elves, and then the secondborn, which is his greatest creation, something that he wanted to have just so and cared a lot for because they had choices. It's sort of biblical, obviously, but I, I like the the fighting.
0: <laughs> the fighting, the fighting is yeah. good. Well, the, when we go back to Greek mythology, we certainly find that the uh, the distinction is there as well between the immortals and the mortals and the human beings are defined largely by the fact that they are mortal that this is the single defining characteristic of human beings in say homer and it is the thing that uh well they're referred to as mortals you know they're not referred to as humans as much so this is a this is a a, a juxtaposition we see again in, in the
2: tolkien with these Two races. Yeah, completely, and you know that's the, st- and that I think is the theme. Not to summarize it and be glib about summarizing this book, but that seems to be the theme. In that they is this struggle to come to grips with the fact that things pass away, and all throughout the book, all the characters lose things, either spouses or loved ones, sons, jewels, and they are unable to. Except that things have passed away and ultimately I think that's the central theme of the book, not that we're looking for it, but um, even the, there's a, something I wrote down and just to, as I read this just to prepare a little bit um, these men were, were high thinkers, they were not afraid of death, the Numenorians. they had never been that way until Melkor Morgoth, who was Sauron's boss, came in and started to plant seeds of jealousy of the elves who could live forever And, and sauron
0: is the villain from Lord of the Rings
2: right right he's kind of in this book he plays melkor morgoth's pupil hmm. kind of a little he's a, a student learning the ways of, of evil and doing a pretty good job so he just says even the faithful did not wholly escape from the affliction of their people and they were troubled by the thought of death and that just goes and fuels the whole story is their their attempt to, to gain immortality
1: there also seems to be a re, uh, recurring theme where the most powerful are also the most susceptible to corruption or evil. And what what significance do you think that plays out in the whole, or what is the meaning of that?
2: For sure, for sure, yeah. Um, and I thought about that a little bit too, only because, you know, you've got these Numenorians who are, are so are so badass that after people are scattered throughout middle earth they go into middle earth and help people and teach them to raise crops and make plows and so on later on they rule over them later on they enslave them and and sacrifice them but that's beyond beside the point i'm thinking to myself how does how does this how do they come back and kindle anything that would take back the the good the you know the good side of things and you think about frodo and so on it would never be done by somebody powerful it would have to be somebody you know probably agrarian but yeah that's a great so question
0: the themes sure. of, of good and evil are very much of the time aren't they uh i mean i suppose good and evil exist throughout history but certainly the 20th century uh, the early 20th century, the the First World War, the interwar period, and the Second World War. These are the times during which Tolkien is writing these. And, uh, you know, a lot of people draw comparisons between The Lord of the Rings and the Second World War, the fight against the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Do you see it, think that that's interesting and important as to consider as you go into this book, or is it more
2: yeah for me i i'd actually hadn't thought about that very much the the tide of the war but absolutely there's those themes and i think the other is a big theme with Tolkien just like it was with Lewis and i I talked about scholarship earlier that i haven't really read any scholarship that i can think of at all on on this book as far as outside of fan fiction or things like that Mm. but again i I think that most of the scholarship is probably about either complit or about um about you know more of a a Marxist approach, or just maybe saying how Tolkien is a, is really betrays his times by making uh, the Middle East almost like a stand-in for Mordor and
0: the Middle East,
2: mm-hmm, and and just like just like Lewis did with the Klormans, who are obviously from Turkey and south uh, south of there, where it becomes more of I think more of resembling the Crusades than the world World War II oh, in my mind, but that's just but they are all interesting archetypes that England has hung on to seems like, in literature. We have two, but still.
0: Now, the the Lord of the Rings, we, one thing we discussed uh, with another guest of ours, David Moses Fruchter, was uh, the book he was discussing, the Illuminatus Trilogy, he felt was given short shrift by critics and even perhaps by audiences because it, it was part of the science fiction genre or it was marketed that way. Do you think that... Tolkien. I mean, there's no question of the enormous success of this book in terms of uh, sales, in terms of the fact that it's been made into movies. Oh, not The Silmarillion, perhaps. But uh, is is there a sense do you have that the uh, academic world and the critical world may under underestimate this book?
1: I,
2: I think they probably do, but I don't. I don't think they do it for for literary reasons or even for subject matter I think we're moving away I think we're becoming more open to ideas of of giving critical credence to books that have a a science fictional or or a fantastic approach things like or even, even historical fiction is an example of a book that a, a type of book that would never have gotten critical acclaims, things like Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel and Bring yeah. Up the Bodies and other Booker Prize winners, who are historical fictionists generally considered you know right next to romance. Um, That's true. And well, I, would, well, I
0: always like to point out that War and Peace is historical fico- fiction, and of course it's yeah. not as good a
2: reputation as any book. so Yeah, and, and so there's hope. And, um, and I don't really, I don't, my intent wouldn't even be to necessarily defend the Tolkien the, the Silmarillion as some sort of ac- worthy of academic scholarship, I think it probably is. I mean, I spent the, the last few days in the latter parts of Silmarillion and it's, it's. Prof- I mean, it's amazingly written in, in a way that I, just makes me want to throw the book against the wall. Every five or six sentences, I, I want to rip it apart. I get so moved by it and, you know, it's so amazing. I reread it, write it down and, and still very, very moving. So I think as far as a passionate book goes, go ahead, please. I,
1: I think one of the one of the uh, uh, things that um, most people criticize for it is how confusing it is, as far as there's three different names for the same species or person. Or, um, but I think that's probably what gives it such high esteem as fantasy, because this is sort of taken as uh, a translation of old elvish tales, and then. All the different sectors of elves' tales coming together would be the explanation for why there are so many different names or Mm -hmm. different uh, words to describe the same thing.
2: Completely, I you know I didn't know I I, it it escaped me for a moment that these are exactly the the gathered tales told by the elves. These are the Elven tales, and that that um, the that the good guys would sit around and, and tell these and sing these tales in Lord of the Rings about Elendil and you know Elbereth and all these heroes from the elven days that we learn about in the Silmarillion um, but your point about that these are the tales that are written by the elves and that's why these names the, the human name means one thing the elven name means another thing the Eldarin name means another thing there's a a dark tongue name that means another thing and the more you the more you understand the the, the differences between those names you uncover a nuanced richness that you would never know if you didn't have those two names, you know? So it's amazing. And at the end, like I was saying, this guy, El Farazzo, refused to be called by his Elvish name because he was in rebellion against that. Uh, he'd probably take his, his, Orc- his orcish name as well. But very, very good point, yeah. Union.
1: I also wonder if there wasn't like some final version written in plain elvish that some super nerd would tear apart in hopes of understanding even more nuance of what this book represents.
2: I'm sure that there's a fan, a group of fans working on that right now. It's probably near completion. It's probably beautiful. It's probably well written. Um, I think especially if you take the best fiction that takes an elven perspective, perspective, which the last third of the book, I think, is definitely an, elv- an elvish perspective, even though it's, it's looking down in, at the fall of Numenor, the upheaval that leads to Middle-earth and the need for, uh, you know, this savior, Bilbo. Well,
0: it's, uh, it's funny. <clears throat> the In a letter, I believe, that is published at the beginning of the book uh, that Tolkien wrote to a friend. He's, he mentions as an aside that the word elf is a bad translation uh, into English of what the elves really are. And it's certainly true that in my experience of elves from other genres and other works, uh, we think of elves as little tiny, cute, maybe scary, but not very serious. You know, like Santa Claus, jolly little elf and uh and and what Tolkien is creating here is very different from that he's He's talking about beings that are the size of human beings, but they're much more beautiful, they're immortal, they have
2: incredible
0: exquisite magic uh
2: you know uh, uh, yeah they have they have all sorts of supernatural abilities they have you know, mental plasticity and elasticity that allows them to think and, and just circles around everybody. They have... But all the tr- some of the traditional things, too. I mean, he tapped into a lot of elven myths. Not that I know many of them. I'm kind of spinning here when it comes to elves, other than the ones I've learned from from Tolkien. And and I don't know if Lewis had any elves, but uh, I'm not that versed on elves besides the Cinderons. C.S.
0: Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia.
2: Were there elves in that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> Uh, I've exhausted the the extent of my knowledge outside of Tolkien, but th- those elves were great. I mean, they were wise. They were also telekinetic tele- and telepathic. They could live ever. They could live forever. Crazy. And the bad guys are elves too, right? I think so. I, and they're talking about the bad guys, the orcs, and the, and the orcs. And yeah, and, and just and Sauron isn't he like a dark fallen elf or something? He is. He Sauron is is a is an echelon of deities. Oh, he's a deity, and he's in the same echelon as I, as I think, as I think Gandalf, who is a Maiar, and he sits beneath. It's like a, it's like a corporation. So all these layers of bureaucracy.
0: Speaking of this, it's very very interesting to consider the tendency in certain types of fiction, especially science fiction, especially uh, fantasy, the extent and the application of imagination in creating whole worlds, right? We, we have, when you read a great novel, you don't usually think of it as creating an entire world. You think of, I'm talking about something like, I don't know, a Kurt, not Kurt Vonnegut maybe, but, uh, like, like, uh, like Nabokov. He wrote Lolita Well, that book is set in the United States of America in the 1950s and the world he creates is the world of a few characters living in the world that we all share. Whereas someone like Tolkien has created such a vast culture. uh, uh, There are maps, there are cultures, there are, as you said, he created whole languages in order to do this. And so what you find is that a... Uh, culture revolves around it where there are people who spend their lives studying these these made up
2: worlds just the topography of Middle Earth is a whole probably a, a doctorate because you have like you said LB not only did he create this whole world and he, he destroyed it twice completely he hit twice in the Silmarillion and then at the end of Lord of the Rings he destroys it and then you know so it's and not for any good reason it just he could have resolved it, built a couple borders, maybe had a flood to cover something, but no, just completely annihilates and turns it inside out and then creates a whole new world with new beings, new, new languages. Um, can't explain it. Genius. Maybe. I don't know. Caffeine.
0: I remember reading an interview with the other R.R., George R.R. Martin. I assume he <laughs> took that R.R. thing. Tolkien. Or ran with it. Or ran with it anyway. But uh, he was comparing his works, the Game of Thrones, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire books, which we're familiar with from the TV show, if not from the books. Uh, he said, well, you know, in in Tolkien versus my books, he said, in Tolkien you'll have a reference to a good king who had a good reign and the people were happy during this reign. And he says, in my book, there are no good kings. There are only deeply flawed individuals
2: that are more or less depraved, you know. Uh, do you think that that's fair? I do. I think that the archetypes... I think that's... You know, if you mention anything about... About... Uh, let's say, to put it in the old terms, the Silmarillion's place in the canon, I think the I, these flattened, large, good characters hurt the you know hurt the traction of a book like the Silmarillion to really touch people over a long period of time that on themes that don't have to do with the temporal things like politics or you know that's a different thing so in that way our martin has a better chance of surviving in the canon believe it or not only because it's uh well let me cancel that i think because read it writing talent and other things have a, lot to, have a lot to do with it. But on storytelling alone, I think Martin is a very, very good storyteller. He pulls the pages and is uh, a good storyteller, kind of like uh, you'd make the same case for Stephen King or uh, somebody else like that.
1: As I understood, um, Tolkien, Tolkien is known as like the grandfather of modern fantasy or what we come to think of as modern fantasy because he is one of the first writers to create such an expansive universe totally a mythology yeah. versus what seemed to be the standard olden fairy tales uh almost seemed sort of childish in a lot of ways okay what what um what do you think what do you think uh led him to, I suppose... Uh,
2: probably dissatisfaction with that and a fascination with what had come before and a brilliant mind and, and a desire to assimilate it all in a way that was entertaining to him probably first and foremost, his children. Um, I, and, and then the war maybe fueled a metaphor for him, an analogy that he could work with. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's a first-of-a-kind, other than the Bible, let's say.
0: Yes. Well, he... he I mean, I, and I certainly I wasn't trying to say when I brought up World War I and World War II that the, the works of Tolkien were reducible to an, analogies for those wars. But it certainly is also true that we are talking about a frame of reference for people who grew up during that time that's simply not accessible to us except through books. Uh, you know, Tolkien would have been around in England when a, a whole generation was decimated. You know, the, the yeah. where, where it was a perfectly normal thing to die when you're 18 because of this war. And, uh, and so it's interesting to think about his books, which are so full of apocalyptic themes, uh, the constant threat of... As you said, he he destroyed the world twice in his books. He uh, he he's reminding us that what we may have experienced personally is not the limit of what can go wrong.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely, and it's. I think that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the today's audiences, so to speak, or people who hadn't read it, or anybody younger than me, really, who whose parents didn't grow up in a war in a time of war. I know that we have conflict today. I think without romanticizing the World War II, at a little bit more of a, of a, an impact on on the people that influenced this book. So that's a clumsy way of saying, I think it is a little bit um, political and for its times, but I think that, again, it, it, it could be imprinted upon just about any, any large conflict or any large um, event that involves human themes as a book. Um, you know that's what drew, drew the draws the book to me to this day is to that things pass away the theme you mentioned is that's that's the common theme and these monumental upheavals and i'm, I'm not going to say it's didactic in the in the sense that this is what he's trying to tell us but it's just a major theme it's that's the sooner we come to grips with the fact that things pass away the less that we the more content we'll be um perhaps or you know.
0: so i that's a great point you're bringing up, though, is like what, what why should we read this book? That's the question. And uh, for their listeners at home, I would imagine some of them at least are picking up on the difficulty of this book, the uh, expansive nature of its contents to the point where it almost sounds like you'd have to study it rather
2: than just read it. it uh, is that true? Do you And what brought you to it? Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm glad I had a chance to kind of qualify that because I really intended it not to talk about it in the sense of being in the sense of the the bigger um, academic themes, which, like I said, I'm not interested in that as much, but more about uh, the the fun. I mean, the fun times I had to read it. For me personally, it was inspired by the Peter Jackson movies, you know, and I hadn't. And I saw I think I saw Lord of the Rings, and I thought, wow, when I saw those. Uh, those and i'd read lord of the rings but i'd never had it i'd read lord of the rings a few times but i'd never just seeing. especially i was fascinated by the the Nazgul because i thought that's just a cool concept that's just badass these really bad guys and um and then you in, as the movie progresses you learn a little bit more you see visions of them and and their appearance was so well done i was captivated by them and wanted to know more about them and that drew me to the Silmarillion where i learned about them and that was what was the story there
1: uh, one of them, uh, I I really struggled reading this, and one of the uh, one of the easier things about reading it now versus when it came out is there are so many uh, articles and Wikipedia's online that explain Lord of the Rings, and I had to stop every other page to look up a character or person, or, yeah. and it's just so. Incredibly expansive. I feel like some people do spend most of their lives trying to study and understand these works. Yeah. And, um,
2: I would suggest that I would suggest no that that you don't read any scholarship and open the book and start reading it. And I I would you know the first little bit about the the creation story is a little bit dense, but if you just recognize it as that, almost immediately. You have you have the major story take place and unfold, and at, from that point on, it's all run and gun. It's all battles. It's all dragons and and spiders and you know everything else.
0: Uh, Union, do you see the skies darkening over this recording studio right now?
2: Do you? Do you I feel the the, you feel the, the, the gathering of the, clouds? The, the clouds of, a, of Mordor are starting char- to
0: charged <laughs> energy in the air. Because I think it's time for the lightning round.
1: Lightning round.
2: Oh no! Mount Mount Doom is shuddering.
1: <laughs> Are
2: you ready? I'm I'm ready. Always.
1: When was the first time you fell in love with a
2: book? Pokey little, puppy. pokey little puppy. Pokey little puppy. The pokey little puppy. It's a story about a little puppy who drank too much milk, and I couldn't stop reading it. I couldn't stop reading it, and sure it was a couple years ago, but still. Now this is as, as a five year old. I remember the book well. I'm sure my sisters do. Everybody does. I carried it around like a blanket. Yeah. Awesome.
1: Has a book ever changed your mind?
2: I think so. I think uh, you know. I think I've seen a different perspective. I read a book called The Beach, as my, my one of my first books that I read. That was a novel. Past the comic book maybe when I was in ninth grade or so. And it was it, the theme of it was the atomic conflict. And I I learned some things about that about that idea that influenced me. I don't know if that's exactly changing my mind, but it's definitely influenced my decision making.
0: Comic conflict. What is comic conflict? Comic conflict. Atomic conflict. Oh atomic. Oh, oh you're talking yeah. about on the beach?
2: Mm-hmm. On the yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Has, I, did, I left the on off, didn't I? Yeah, uh, okay.
1: Has a book ever changed your life?
2: Oh yeah. Many books. Every book I read in some way changes my life. I mean the power ones do, of course, you know, the infinite just the this to an extent that it just it shaped my direction and my interests, the Silmarillion did. Uh, absolutely.
1: Fantastic. Has a book ever made you cry?
2: I mean I've welled up plenty of times i've never i don't i don't think I've read a book and dropped it and cried i've i've welled up and, and dripped over and been moved does that count sure okay <laughs> all right good uh
1: can you name a book you've read more than once
2: i yeah i can i can name a couple of books
1: some off the top of your head
2: sure uh i'll Hmm, one that makes sense let's say pokey little puppy (laughs)
1: pokey little puppy and the big one do you have any poetry committed to memory
2: I used to I used to have some Emily Dickinson and uh, let me think if I can find. let me not to the impediments of true love admit
0: let me not to the marriage of
2: two Admit admitted pediments and that's it so that was like I think from fourth grade We'll take that as a, as a maybe. <laughs> Next time, we'll have a whole sonnet for you. All right, Daniel. Do we
0: have any closing remarks on this book or about yourself or your life or anything coming up for you that you would like to share with the people at home?
2: You know, it's, it's been a blast. You know, LB Union, it's been a good time. It's my very, very first podcast and I think I want to do it again I love it I'm having a blast it's very energizing and um, and that's really it you know I can encourage people to pick this book up don't be intimidated by it if you need to jump to the chapter on Baron and Luthien if you understand that there are good guys and bad guys you know and if you take that with a grain of salt you'll be in there in no time uh, riding a, a, an undead dragon and other than that LB, I mean people can follow me on Instagram that'd be great I've got a lot of cool things there at D menega. D. Yeah, on one Instagram word and, and all that, mind. just... Uh, if you're not already well, of course, I've, D. Got, on the I've got a couple slots left. With you.
0: We are very happy to have had you here today, Mr. Menega, and I personally have been quite touched and honored to have our super intern, Union Brooks, as my co-pilot Yay. in this great interview. Uh, the book, again, is J.R.R. R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion, and we encourage you to read it. We encourage you to become a fanatic for it and to lose your mind and and believe that it's real.
2: Go for it. Get into it.
0: Go for it. And uh, Once again, we're going to ask you to go to pov-publishing.com not for our sake, to be sure, but for yours. Because we hate to see you embarrass yourself by not going to pov-publishing.com. Thank you. Union, any last words? Don't forget to check out Lance Myers, a... Clash of the Christmas Clones. Clash of the Christmas Clones is the book. Buy it on our site. Miss you, Lance. Yes. Daniel was sorry to not be able to talk to Lance, but he was very pleased to talk to Union. I'm reading Daniel. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, and good night.